0: Welcome to Archaeology in 30, a podcast produced by the Florida Public Archaeology Network. I'm your host, Mike Toman, and in this episode we'll chat to FPAN Central Regional Public Archaeology Coordinator, Nigel Rudolph. We'll chat with Nigel about the Crystal River Archaeological State Park in his region and the 2016 Florida Archaeology Month poster titled, Artisans of the Woodland. Nigel's art is featured in this poster, which won third place in the annual Society for American Archaeology poster competition. We'll also talk to Nigel about his work as a ceramic artist and how his background in art applies to interpreting cultural material and public archaeology. Joining us now via Skype from Crystal River is our FPAN Central Regional Public Archaeology Coordinator, Nigel Rudolph. Thanks for being on, man.
1: Hey, Mike. My pleasure, man. It's good to be here.
0: And so... uh, you are actually your office is located out um, in the Crystal River Archaeological State Park, which is uh, it's a National Historic Landmark, um, but obviously it's it's also an archaeological site. Can you tell me a little bit about that site and why it's significant?
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm really lucky to uh, be. At Crystal River. I mean, it's really one of the most amazing sites that I've been to in Florida, um, that I've been to in the Southeast. Um, and it's really unique in its design and its location and all that uh, in Florida and really throughout the Southeast United States, and maybe even the entire United States. But... Crystal River as a site, um, basically the latest dates, and I know dates are so controversial, but the latest dates that we're going with is about 450 B.C. to about uh, roughly 1,000 A.D. I think the last I heard, the last radiocarbon date that Dr. Tom from USF got was 960 A.D. And so it's a large mound complex, uh, both midden and sand mounds, um, and it's unique for the fact there's several large platform mounds there at the site. Um, the largest being Mound A, which is about 30 feet tall, um, and it's right on the Crystal River. Unfortunately, there's only about a third of that mound still there. Two thirds of it got bulldozed in the 1960s. But it's a really fantastic site, ceremonial center, um, large burial complex, which consists of three mounds. And then there's a smaller burial mound on the north end of the site. So lots going on, lots going on there.
0: Yeah, it sounds really cool. I've, I've never been there uh, myself, but, I've, of course, I've heard about it. You know, we have the, your, your offices there, so, uh, but I've also heard about it and read about it in other publications. Um, besides the, you know, the archaeology there on the archaeological site, uh, it's a state park, so people can come out and visit this uh, place. And then what other than the mounds is there anything else that people can see there?
1: Yeah, we have a, um, there's a fantastic the, uh, museum, the Crystal River Archaeological State Park Museum. It's a really great museum. They, um, It's basically, for the most part, been unchanged since its opening in the mid-60s. Um, but just recently, with the help of FPAN, we've really, uh, we started the progression to upgrade the museum and really, change some of the exhibits. We brought in a uh, fantastic mural. We curated a call to artists a couple of years back and um, for a new mural that they had painted there um, that's on the wall displayed. And we just recently acquired a dugout canoe from a site within the region. Um, So that's now displayed at the museum. And um, so we're hoping that those two things, the mural and the canoe, are kind of going to be a catalyst for really updating the museum and really kind of trying to bring more public into this just amazing site that's there
0: and then uh speaking of murals and and artists um so this year uh the florida public archaeology network and florida anthropological society uh, florida archaeological council and the division of historical resources all pulled some money together to uh create help fund create and print out the uh annual FAM posters or Florida Archaeology Month posters, um, and so the the Society for American Archaeology they have a big poster competition every year at their annual meeting, at, uh, um, which is this year was in Orlando, in Florida, um, and this year the, it's been the first time that f- the Florida poster. Uh, has actually placed it placed third place in this poster competition that's never happened before um and and you actually had a role with uh helping to design this poster can you tell me a little bit about that
1: yeah absolutely and i was so psyched i was so excited when we when we placed um really it's really a highlight of certainly of my um, work my time at f-pan and definitely uh, you know as far as being an artist
0: do you have the plaque point. do you have the plaque sitting on your wall at home at all
1: the, they have it at the, they, the West central region
0: oh no no <laughs> that's okay that's okay maybe every year you can
1: share it back and forth yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> but that actually leads me into like first and foremost um, Give credit to uh, Becky O'Sullivan and all the folks at the West Central region for their hard work on the poster too. Becky is uh, a brilliant graphic designer and does so much with everything as far as their outreach. And so this was kind of just a really great extension of her skills to put together this poster. She, I was lucky enough for her to ask me to um, help out with a lot of the artwork. So. I did a lot of the designs, um, I did all the watercolors, and actually uh, in the upper right-hand corner of the front of the poster is a tracing of my hand, which is which is kind of funny when I look at the poster every time, I, I that's my hand right there.
0: Does it fit on the poster, is it like to size at all, a scale? We can see how big your hand is. Yeah,
1: oh, it's huge, it's at least, uh, <laughs> it's at least 10 inches. Yeah, nice, yeah.
0: But nice. <laughs> <laughs> so that guy's good at basketball, probably. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. <laughs>
0: Well, that's cool. And then, so yeah, the the watercolors and people can actually go online to the uh, Florida Archaeology Month website, and they can see um, some digital versions of the of the poster. And I think I don't know if it's up there now, but it certainly will probably be up on the SAA's poster contest website. So it's a it's a beautiful beautiful poster. Um, right. And then on on the back of it, you know, you've got some sites uh, on there, including uh, Crystal River archaeological site, and it has some artifacts on there. Um, but one, one thing that, uh, is also on the poster, and it, and it talks a little bit about is ceramics. And that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to, uh, talk to you. And that's because you're not only an archaeologist, but you're also a ceramic artist. Um, now I went to your website, it's, which is, people can go to it, it's www.rudolphclaystudios.com. And so I looked at your pieces, and they're really beautiful. Um, and just reading your art, artist statement, um, it's, it's very apparent from both your pieces of your, of your work as well as what you've written that um, your interest in clay, uh, that medium, and the pottery that you create really is connected with um, your own heritage but also the past. Can you tell me how you got interested in working with clay uh, to begin with?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, and thanks for the uh, the website plug. I appreciate
0: that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, clay. I've been working with clay for quite a while. I think I first started using the material, um, I guess just playing around with it when I was a kid. Um, I was raised, my mother was a Montessori elementary school teacher for, she taught Montessori for about 36 years. And so I was raised as a Montessori kid and um, art and access to art was a huge part of that education. Um, so I kind of got into using clay as a child. And then when I started at community college, um, I started taking ceramics classes, and it really just clicked then, because um, around that same time, I was uh, starting to get into this idea of anthropology and really kind of embracing my heritage, um, my mother's Peruvian, and really beginning to examine the art, the architecture, um, and the archaeology from a prehistoric Peru, um, pre-Columbian Peru, and really getting fascinated by that And then looking at ceramics and trying to start incorporating a lot of ideas and a lot of references that I see within prehistoric Peruvian culture um, into my own art. And then later on, as I got in, more involved with archaeology professionally, um, looking at Florida ceramics became a huge influence as well on the work that I'm doing as a ceramic artist.
0: And can you kind of take me through the the process of when when you actually sit down and you're making a piece uh what what kind of inspires you to to put a design on a pot and then how do you how do you make what you make I mean if you can even explain that I don't know Oh yeah
1: no it's it's pretty it you know it's one of those things that I've done so much that I can explain it pretty well um but it it really comes down to um I, ha- I guess I guess at this point a lot of these influences have become an intrinsic thing that just happens with when I when I sit down to make work. Um, all my work is wheel thrown on the potter's wheel, um, and I'm really referencing as far as the forms are concerned. I'm referencing um, American historic ceramics. So we're talking German salt glaze wares um, from the uh, 18th and 19th century. Um, you know old whiskey jugs and things like that, that's a real big reference as far as the forms I make are concerned. But then when it comes to the actual designs, and I primarily do incised carvings on most of my work, all that is coming from um, the Native American, uh, pre-Columbian, Peruvian side of it. And, in fact, a lot of it isn't just the reference isn't just coming from ceramics. I'm also heavily influenced by a lot of the
0: textile work that was coming out of... um, Uh, Pre-Columbian Peru. That's yes, and can you mentioned in in size carving? Can you explain what that is?
1: Sure. So I use these uh, these little metal hoop carving tools, and I actually carve into the clay. I actually remove the clay um, in patterns. Um, And I've tried every different way to do it. I've uh, used so many different kinds of tools, and now my toolkit is basically two little wire tools that I. Um, have to replace continuously because I wear them out. And then I do some other intricate designs within those designs to kind of show depth. Um, and then also the pot is finished in the firing process. And then when I add glazes and all that's kind of to show depth and gesture within the vessel itself and all kind of coming from this one place um, within me that's coming from this, this, intense interest in archaeology and anthropology.
0: And so you mentioned some of the tools you work with. Do you use uh, uh, paddle stamps at all in any of your work? Oh, no, good question, though. I don't use paddle stamps.
1: Um, There are a lot of contemporary uh, ceramic artists that still do use paddle stamps. In fact, a really good friend of mine who is an artist up in Minnesota, um, he posted a picture recently in social media of this paddle stamp pot that he had made. And it was essentially in a check stamped pattern that we all see in a lot of the um, the decorated prehistoric pottery here in Florida. Um, and so I sent him an image of a, a prehistoric sherd, check stamped sherd, and he absolutely flipped out because his influences are coming from Asia and Japan and Korea. And they were also using uh, wooden paddles to stamp their vessels. Um, and so he was kind of bowled over by this idea that folks in the southeast and folks in florida were making really similar work um using a very similar method and to me that really speaks to you know the availability of materials at the time and the um, you're, you can only do so many things uh, when you're trying to decorate a piece of ceramic no matter what culture you end up being in especially before the days of plastic and all these things so prehistoric cultures really there's a lot of similarities between um, the work that they're doing all over the world, and you see that in Asia, you see that in South America, and you see that in America, and all these different cultures.
0: Yeah, and I, I guess too, it's it's a lot of it is just the functionality of it. You know, I mean, we all have to, you know, people that cook food uh, and then eat it or, or drink out of a cup. Uh, there, there's it's got to have a function, and we all are going to use it for the same thing. So, so you know, there's the art in it, but there's also how you're going to actually use it in everyday life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's really big to me as far as the kind of work that I make. Um I mean, I make functional pots. Um I intend my my work to be used. I hope my work would be used. I often when I um either give work away or sell work, people always tell me, "Well, I'm just going to put this up on the pedestal. And I'm never going to use it because I don't want <laughs> to break it." And you know, I'm like, "No, use it. I designed it to use." Um so that's really important to me, this interaction between um the actual piece, the user and the object and the relationship that kind of forms between that and i think that's something else that we can also see within prehistoric florida ceramics um, so it's kind of all tied in together
0: yeah and and, and as as a ceramic artist you've you've actually Done many different exhibits uh, all over the country. And I was looking at your your uh, artist uh, resume that's that's online, and it's it's amazing all the different places you've been through the years. So you obviously have a lot of experience with this. But that made me, you know, you just mentioned um, the you know the functionality of your pieces and wanting people to to actually use them. Have you ever uh like you know just kind of been around the country and seen ever like come across your piece whether in person like someone in someone's house or like on on social media someone posts like a picture and you're like hey that's my pot i have actually is it weird or it is kind of weird um and i've actually
1: come to people's houses that i didn't know had my work and seen it in there and yeah i mean it makes you happy um because they're they're taking the time to display it, or if I open up their cabinet and I see one of my mugs in there, yeah, it does. It it really makes me happy to see that folks are um, engaging with the piece as I intended it. Um, you know, it's it. That's that's what it's all about. That's that's why I do it. Um, I'm not trying to. Um, just have some venue for expressing myself. I could do that in any kind of different way, but I'm trying to interact with the person that gets to use one of these objects, and I'm really lucky. I don't know if they're really lucky to be using it, but I'm really lucky that they're they're choosing, and they've maybe even made a monetary exchange with me right. um, in order to, to to utilize this, so it's it makes me very happy to see that.
0: Yeah, and in all the years, do you have any idea in how many pieces you've actually made or is it just you've done so many like you have no idea
1: oh yeah i, I have no, no idea, idea. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah well that brings me kind of to the next question you know we think about you know we've talked about people in the use of pottery dating back to prehistoric times um certainly for cooking food especially they, they were important pottery is important for that um but as a artist who works with this type of media medium um does it give you any insights into the pottery you find as an archaeologist, or that you end up analyzing uh, in the archaeological context.
1: Absolutely, um, and so what I'm really fascinated about is, um, and actually the subject matter of the Artisans of a Woodland, the uh, <laughs> the the poster that uh, Becky and I did, um, uh, this idea of the artisan uh the prehistoric artisan you know the woodland period was this time period where they they kind of established roles for people and and one of the roles was uh, somebody whose job it was to was to make these ceramic objects and they're beautifully made they're beautifully well crafted and what's so fascinating to me is the nicest pieces that came out of this cultural time period, especially Wheaton Island um, and a lot of these paddle stamped pieces were made for the grave. So they were never made, never intended to be used um, in the the concept and conceptually as we uh, consider them. They were made specifically to go in with, in a mortuary practice. And so that's what's really fascinating to me this idea of ceremonial vessel though uh, and highly crafted and somebody sitting there making and producing this thing and as an artist i recognize the uh, the amount of work that goes into these things i mean some of the weed and island pots took i mean days to make these things are just amazingly beautifully crafted embellished stamped decorated Highly thought out, highly conceptualized, and then they're put directly in the ground.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. And and some like you mentioned, uh, weed island stuff. Um. And we had talked earlier, but the on the front of the poster you have the buck urn, um. And you had right. a really cool name for it, Quasimodo. <laughs> Quasimodo. <laughs> but, but yeah. But that's that's like a good example that that we talked a little bit before we we did this interview, um. On but uh, that's what's amazing too about those types of pieces is. The same culture uh, made pots that were completely different in other contexts. Uh, and you you were kind of mentioning that. and so i I, I kind of agree with you there. it's It's really amazing to see the difference in style um, right the daily use items. And then, and then these pieces for for burial mounds.
1: Right, and that sort of is connected to the kind of work I make. I mean, um, this idea of producing an object that is intended for daily use. Like I'm, I, I still make. Uh, you know, lots of mugs and lots of tumblers, and, you know, I make things like batter bowls, and these things are intended to be utilized, right, every day. Um, but then I also make these these barrel objects, these larger forms that are, are sort of somewhere in the realm between sculpture and functional pottery. I mean, they totally function, as a lot of these and Island vessels um, would do. They would totally function, um, but then the intention is beyond the function. The intention is... Almost bordering on ceremony, and I don't—I don't have any direct connection. Obviously, I'm not Native American. I don't have any connection to how they use their work and the motivations that they had behind the production of a lot of these sculptures and, and ceremonial vessels. Um, all I can kind of uh, base my work on is is my experience. But this idea of ceremony and of making a special occasion for the use of some of these um, these vessels, especially that I make, I can see a direct correlation between a lot of the Native American groups that were making everyday functional wear and at the same time producing this, this highly crafted, absolutely beautiful um, ceremonial objects that you know were designed to go into the grave with people. So it's really fascinating.
0: Yeah, and I think that's great too. As an artist, you're you're almost able to see kind of the practicality in some cases behind making these pieces. You know, we had talked earlier uh, about paddle stamps um, and the use of them, and you had you had mentioned um, when we spoke before before this interview uh, how how the pad- these paddle stamps are often carved. Out of wood the designs would be actually carved in this wood and then they would press that on the clay to make the design and how the wood wouldn't didn't stick to the clay um, and I right. think that's that's a really interesting insight that um, as someone like myself who doesn't work in this medium at all uh, wouldn't know that without you know without actually doing it so
1: yeah, um and I mean the if you go back to the poster, the uh, the actual front of the the poster, the um design work on the the left-hand side sort of that border that goes around the title and everything, all that is sort of appropriated from these uh the Swift Creek complicated um paddle stamps um designs. So yes, the Native Americans they would carve these very intricate wooden paddles and they would use that to replicate that same pattern on multiple different vessels. Um, so not only, if you think about this, not only did they have to carve this intricate paddle, um, I, when I have made paddles, I've used the Dremel tool. They didn't have that option, right? And so they were carving this intricate, beautiful pattern on a wooden paddle and then stamping that onto the pot. So the level of craftsmanship involved in the whole process is pretty, um, pretty intense. Um. So I mean, I wish I could make work as just amazing and thought out as some of the work that came out of prehistoric Florida. That that, that would be great.
0: Yeah, and and to think about you know to, like with having that specific skill set, I mean they must have had, um, and I think most archaeologists believe this, but within these time periods, you had a really specialized craft craftsman who who did this, and this was maybe their job. Or, yeah. So. Yeah,
1: that's what we're starting to understand is that there's. You know, specialized people whose, whose job it was, was to sit there and make these really cool objects all day long. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like, all right, good. I mean, hopefully they got paid for it. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, but so we talked a little bit about carving of wood. And you, you you know, worked in obviously clay and watercolor, um, but you've also worked in wood. And I know that you've been doing stuff with dugout canoes. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how that's been going? Yeah, so um, I don't know. I just got a hair, and
1: I found a uh, pine log sitting on the side of the road when I was driving home from the office one day. Um, and so I threw it in the back of the truck, and we had an event. Um, I, I do these events, History by Gainesville, and it was kind of focused on um, on uh, Noonan's Lake, which is an area here in Gainesville where they found a, a just, hundred of, hundred dugout canoes. And so I started making one. I just made one. It's small. It's more of what we call in the artist world a maquette. So a model of this, of this canoe. But, um, and I was using, uh, metal tools, but I just used one hatchet. But I, it really gives you a lot of respect for the amount of labor that went into these things. I mean, it kicked my butt making this one. And so I've started another one. And, um, unfortunately, I think it's become an obsession. Um, <laughs> so uh, the blisters on my hand are kind of proving that I have to e- either quit or keep going. So.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, are you going to try to, is this like a life size one that you can actually try to get in and, not this one. My dog could probably fit in the one I'm working on now. Yeah. But,
1: um I, I would very much like to uh, do a life-sized one. So if anybody knows uh, where I can find a, a newly cut 10-foot um, pine log, holler.
0: Yeah. And then um, what, what's really interesting too about the you know the dugout canoes that I've seen, um, they they it looks to me at least that they're very they're they're made for their specific function i think like most watercraft or you know obviously they're have a function but a lot of times too especially during the age of sail um, you had these highly specialized carpenters that would make all sorts of intricate designs on the ship itself um, do we see anything like that at all in these dugout canoes where you see some type of pattern or carving or any type of art or have we just not seen that and and dug out canoes.
1: Um I think certainly um when the Seminole came into play, um they were doing some more intricate um embellishments on the canoes themselves and we have obviously photographic evidence of that a lot of times. But um before then, prehistorically, um I'm not aware of anything that we've seen. It doesn't mean it wasn't there. Um the condition that's most of the canoes that we find are um, they're so poor that maybe a lot of those embellishments, a lot of those carvings and designs might not be visible.
0: Um, right. Yeah. Um,
1: especially after sitting underwater for a thousand years or more.
0: Right, yeah. And then also, I mean, obviously the carpenters in the age of Sail were using metal tools and chisels. And, you right. know, uh, it might be a, an, a case where either the designs didn't last or they just didn't have the the tool technology that would have enabled them to... To do that, but obviously they did. They did some of that with the paddle stamps that that you all that have been found in, uh, right. or at least the rem- remnants of the paddle stamps within the actual ceramic work. Um, and then the other thing thing I wanted to, to talk to you a little bit about was um, a while back, uh, you actually made a vernacular headstone uh, for <laughs> for one of the F. Pan's been really involved in uh, cement, work with cemeteries, historic cemeteries as well as modern cemeteries and. Um, Helping to preserve these places and also interpret them. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, why you why you made this uh, vernacular headstone and how you did it? Sure. Um,
1: so yeah, there is there is a YouTube video, folks. If you guys want to pop over to YouTube and see that, it's pretty funny uh, with a cameo appearance from my dog. Um, so uh, Sarah Miller from Saint uh, Aug Saint Augustine office. Um, Asked me if I would be interested in doing a vernacular headstone um, demonstration for the uh, the past uh, crypt conference, um, and so I said sure. I'd never done I'd never worked with concrete in my life, so I thought it would be a great opportunity to learn. And I'm always excited about um, trying new things, especially new artistic expressions. Um, and so I did it. And actually, um, for the conference, it didn't work out because the logistics of trying to work with powdered concrete and the the size of the stone that I was making, so I thought maybe making a YouTube video and publishing that, that would be a good way to do it. Um, so I made it there in the backyard in front of my art studio, and it was surprisingly easy, but there's more difficult challenges than I thought there would be, um, but it's still sitting exactly where I, uh, I left it that day because it's really heavy. Um, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the idea of vernacular headstones and um, folks making uh, making stones themselves for their loved ones. Um, I mean, produced and professionally made headstones are also really cool, but there's this, there's this connection to the common person that you see with the vernacular headstone that you're not going to see with like a mass-produced, professionally made one. This connection to the hand, um, to the maker itself, and that's what's always so... I mean, in ceramics and in watercolors and everything, that's what I'm all about is this connection to um, the, the actual producers of these objects.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. Well, thanks for, for joining me, man. It's been great talking to you. Um, I definitely would recommend people checking out some of your work, and I'll put those links up on, uh, on the actual iTunes page as well as our SoundCloud page.
1: Thanks, man. I appreciate it, and thanks for giving me a holler.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of our podcast series, Archaeology in 30. You can view some of Nigel's work by visiting the website www.rudolphclaystudios.com. For more information on the latest events in your area, or for public archaeology resources, visit our website at www.fpan.us. Look out for new episodes of this podcast through iTunes or SoundCloud, and take care.